Section 64 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Sutner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 15, Part 4. Now explain to me, I said to Frederick, as we got into our carriage, which was in waiting in front of Aunt Cornelia's villa, why you asked the consultorial counselor to a conference with you? Do not you understand? That is to serve me as material for study. I want to hear once more, and this time to take note of, the arguments by which priests defend public murder. I put you forward as the leader in the fray. It better becomes a young lady to nourish a doubt from the Christian point of view as to the lawfulness of war than a gallant colonel. But you know that my doubt is not from a religious, but a humanitarian point of view. We must not lay this at all before the reverend consultorial counselor, or else the discussion would be transferred to a different field. The efforts after peace of free thinkers suffer from no internal inconsistency, but it is this very inconsistency existing between the maxims of Christianity and the orders of military authorities, which I should like to hear explained by a military chaplain, i.e., a representative of militant Christianity. The clergyman was punctual in his arrival. The prospect was evidently an inviting one for him of having to preach a sermon of instruction and conversion. I, on the contrary, looked forward to the conversation with somewhat painful feelings, for the part assigned to me in it was a dishonest one. But, for the good of the cause to which Frederick had devoted his services henceforth, I was easily able to put some constraint on myself, and comfort myself with a proverb, the end justifies the means. After the first greetings, we were all three seated on low, easy chairs before the fire, the consistorial counselor began thus, Allow me, dear lady, to enter on the object of my visit. The matter is to remove from your soul some scruples, which are not destitute of some apparent grounds, but which can easily be refuted as sophistical. You think, for example, that Christ's command to love your enemies, and also the text, He who takes the sword shall perish by the sword, are inconsistent with the duties of a soldier, who no doubt is empowered to injure the enemy in body and life. Certainly, Reverend Counselor, this inconsistency seems to me irreconcilable. Then there occurs also the express command of the Decalogue, Thou shalt not kill. Oh, yes, to a superficial judgment there is some difficulty in that, but on penetrating deeper all doubt vanishes. As regards the fifth commandment, it would be more correctly given, as it is actually in the English version of the Bible, Thou shalt not murder, Killing for necessary defense is not murder, and war is in reality only necessary defense on a large scale. We can, and we ought, following the gentle precept of our Savior, to love our enemies, but that does not mean that we are not to venture to defend ourselves from open wrong and violence. Then does it not follow, of course, from this, that only defensive wars are justifiable and that no sword-stroke ought to be given till the enemy has invaded the country? 
but if the opposing nation proceeds on the same principle, how then can the battle ever begin? In the late war, it was your army, Reverend Counselor, which first crossed the frontier and... If one wishes to keep the foe off, dear lady, as we have the most sacred right to do, it is utterly unnecessary to put off the favorable opportunity and to wait until he has first invaded one's country. On the contrary, the sovereign must, under all circumstances, have freedom to anticipate the violent and unjust. In doing so, he is following the written word, He who takes the sword shall perish by the sword. He presents himself as God's servant and avenger on the enemy, because he strives to make him, as he has taken the sword against him, perish by the sword. There must be some fallacy in that, I said, shaking my head. It is impossible that these principles should justify both parties equally. And as to the further scruple, pursued the clergyman, without noticing my remark, that war is of, and by itself displeasing to God, this must depart from every Christian who believes in the Bible, for the Holy Scriptures sufficiently prove that the Lord himself gave commands to the people of Israel to wage wars in order to conquer the promised land, and he granted them victory and his blessing on their wars. In Numbers 21.14, a special book of the wars of the Lord is spoken of, and how often in the Psalms is the assistance celebrated which God has granted to his people in war? Do you not know what Solomon says? Proverbs 21.31 The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. In Psalm 144, David thanks and praises the Lord his strength, who teacheth his hand to war and his fingers to fight. Then a contradiction prevails between the Old and the New Testament. The God of the ancient Hebrews was a warlike deity, but the gentle Jesus proclaimed the message of peace and taught love to neighbor and to enemy. In the New Testament also, Jesus speaks in a figure, Luke 14.31, without the least blame of a king who is going to make war against another king. And how often, too, does not the Apostle Paul use figures from the military life? He says, Romans 13.4, that the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, but is God's servant, a revenger on him that doeth evil. Well, then, in that case, the contradiction I mean exists in the Holy Scripture itself. By your showing me that it is present in the Bible, you do not remove it. There one sees the superficial and at the same time arrogant method of judgment, which seeks to exalt one's own weak reason above the word of God. Contradiction is something imperfect, ungodlike, and if I show that a thing is in the Bible, the proof is complete that in itself, however incomprehensible it may be to the human understanding, it can contain no contradiction. Unless the presence of contradiction does not much rather prove that the passages in question cannot possibly be of divine origin. This answer trembled on my lips, but I suppressed it, in order not to change entirely the object of the discussion. Look here, Reverend Counselor, said Frederick, now mingling in the conversation. A chief captain of artillery in the seventeenth century has laid down much more forcibly than you have done 
the justifiability of the horrors of horror by an appeal to the Bible. I extracted the passage and have read it to my wife, but she did not sympathize with the spirit expressed in it. I confess the thing seems to me, well, a little strong, and I should like to hear your view about it. If you will allow me, I will fetch the paper. So he took a sheet of paper out of a drawer, unfolded it, and read. War was invented by God himself, and taught to men. God posted the first soldier with a two-edged sword in front of paradise, to keep out of it Adam, the first rebel. You may read in Deuteronomy how God, by means of Moses, gives people encouragement to victory, and even gives them his priests for advance guard. The first stratagem was practiced at the city of Ai. In this war of the Jews, the sun had to stand and show light in the firmament for two whole days together, in order that the war and the victory might be followed up, and many thousands put to the sword and their kings hung up. All the horrors of war are permitted by God, for the whole of the Holy Writ is full of them, and proves satisfactorily that regular war is an invention of God himself, and that, therefore, every man can, with a clear conscience, serve in it, and can live and die in it. He is permitted to burn his enemy, or brand him, flay him, shoot him down, or hack him to pieces. All this is just, that others judge as they please about it. God, in these passages, has forbidden nothing, but has permitted the most horrible ways of destroying men. The prophetess Deborah nailed the head of Sisera, the leader in that war, to the earth. Gideon, chosen by God as the leader of the people, revenged himself on the princes of Sukheth, who had refused him some provisions, like a soldier. Sword and fire were too poor. They were thrashed and torn in pieces with thorns. And, as before, this was righteous in the sight of God. The royal prophet David, a man after God's own heart, invented the most cruel tortures for the vanquished children of Ammon at Rabbath. He had them hewed with sabers, caused chariots to drive over them, cut them with knives, and dragged them through the places where they made the bricks. And so did he in all the towns of the children of Ammon. Besides this, "'That is horrible, abominable,' broke in the chief chaplain. "'It could only be a rough soldier,' of the savage times of the Thirty Years' War, to whom it would appear natural to produce examples like these out of the Bible in order to found thereon a justification for their cruelties against the enemy. We preach quite other doctrine now. Nothing more is to be striven for in war than to make your adversary incapable of harm, even up to his death, but without any evil design against the life of any individual." If any such design enters in, or even any murderous desire or any cruelty against those who are defenseless, in such a case killing in war is exactly as immoral and as impermissible as in peace. No doubt in past centuries, when the adventurous delight in feud and quarrel prevailed, when leaders of lanchnecks and vagrant persons carried on war as a trade, in such times an artillery captain might write in that style. But in the present day, armies are not put into the field for gold and booty, not without knowing for whom or for what, but for the highest ideal objects of mankind. 
for freedom, independence, nationality, for justice, faith, honor, purity, and morality. You, Reverend Consistorial Council, I interposed, are at least milder and more humane than the artillery captain, and thus you have no proofs out of the Bible to allege for the lawfulness of cruelty in which our forefathers of the Middle Ages, and presumably also the ancient Hebrews, took a pleasure. And yet it is the same book, and the same Jehovah, and he cannot have become milder. And everybody still gets from him as much support as suits his views. On this I received a slight sermon of rebuke for my want of reverence for the word of God, and for my want of judgment in reading it. Still, I succeeded in leading the conversation back again to our special subject, and now the consistorial council launched out into a long dissertation, and one which this time was allowed to be uninterrupted, about the connection between the military and Christian spirits. He spoke of the religious devotion, which is dwelling in the oath to the standard, when the colors are carried solemnly, with the accompaniment of music, into the church, with a guard of honor of two officers with drawn swords. And there the recruit marches out for the first time in public with helmet and sidearms, and for the first time follows the colors of his company, unfolded now before the altar of the Lord, torn as they are, and stained with the honorable marks of the battles in which they have been carried. He spoke of the prayer offered every Sunday in church, preserve the royal commander of the army, and all true servants of their king and country. Teach them as Christians to think of their end, and grant that their service may be blessed, to the honor and the good of the country. God with us, he went on, is, as you know, the motto on the belt buckle with which the foot soldier buckles on his sidearms, and this watchword should give him confidence. If God be with us, who can be against us? Then there are also the universal days of public prayer and humiliation, which are ordered at the commencement of a war, that the people may beg for God's help in prayer, both in the comfortable hope of his support and in the confidence through the support of gaining a victorious termination. What devotion does there not lie in this for the departing warrior? How mightily does this exalt his delight in battle and in death? He can, with comfort, enter into the ranks of the warriors when his king calls for him, and can reckon on victory and blessing for the cause of right. God the Lord will no more deprive our people of this than his people, Israel of old, if only it is with prayers to him that we carry on the work of battle. The ultimate alliance between prayer and victory, between piety and valor, easily follows, for what can more assure one of joy in the prospect of death than the confidence that if our last hour should strike in the confusion of the battle, we shall find favor at the hands of the judge in heaven. Fidelity and faith, in union with manliness and warlike virtue, belong to the oldest traditions of our people. He went on in this tone for a long time more, now with oily mildness, with sunken head, in the softest tones, speaking of love, humility, little children, salvation, and precious things now with military voice of command, with a proud, erect attitude, talking of strict morals and stern discipline, sharp and cutting, of sword and shield. The word joy 
was never used otherwise than in composition with death, battle, and dying. From the point of view of the army chaplain, to kill and to be killed seem to be the most exquisite delights in life. Everything else is exhausting, sinful pleasure. Verses, too, were recited. First this one of Kerner. Father, do thou guide me. Guide me to victory. Guide me to death. Lord, I confess thy command. Lord, as thou willest, so guide me. God, I confess thee. Then the old popular song of the Thirty Years' War. No happier death on earth can be than one good stroke from mortal foe, on fresh green turf in breezes free. No woman's tears, no cries of woe, no grim deathbed whence, lone and slow, from life's gay scene your soul must go. Like swaths of grass in lusty row, mid shouting friends, death lays you low. And then the song by Lenau of the war-loving armorer. Peace steals on, and, mining slowly, saps our vigor, dims our story. While she boasts her influence holy, cobwebs gather o'er our glory. Hark! Then sounds war's joyous rattle. Wounds may yawn, blood flow in battle. We need yawn in sloth no longer. War's pruning makes mankind the stronger. And, to conclude, the saying of Luther. When I look at war as a thing that protects wife, child, house, land, goods, and honor, and in doing so gains peace and secures it, in that view, war is the right precious thing. Oh, yes, if I look at the panther as a dove, in that case, the panther is a very gentle beast, I remarked unheard. The military chaplain did not allow himself to be disturbed in his flow of eloquence. And, when he ended and took leave, I found myself with two convictions. That war, from the Christian point of view, is a justifiable, and in and by itself is a precious thing. It was visibly a very agreeable thing to him to have, by means of this rhetorical victory, both fulfilled the duty of his profession and in doing so rendered a considerable service to the foreign colonel. For, as he rose to go, and we expressed to him our thanks for the trouble he had been so good as to undertake, he deprecatingly rejoined, It is for me to thank you for having given me an opportunity of chasing away your doubts through my feeble word, whose entire efficacy is to be ascribed to the word of God, which I have so often quoted, Doubts which are of such a nature as to bring nothing but pain to a person who is not only a Christian, but a soldier's wife. Peace be with you. Oh, I groaned when he was gone. That was torture. Yes, said Frederick, it was. Our want of straightforwardness especially was uncomfortable to me, and, particularly the false premises under which we got him to display his eloquence, at one moment I was on the point of saying to him, Stop, Reverend Sir, I myself entertain the same views against war as my wife, and what you are saying only serves, as far as I am concerned, to enable me to see more clearly the weakness of your arguments. But I held my tongue. Why interfere with an honest man's conviction, a conviction which is besides the foundation of his profession in life? Conviction? Are you certain of that? 
Does he really believe that he is speaking the truth, or does he purposely deceive his common soldiers when he promises them an assured victory through the assistance of a god of whom he nevertheless must know this, that he is invoked in exactly the same way by the enemy? These appeals to our people and to our cause as the only righteous one, and one which is God's cause too, were surely only possible at a time when one people shut out all other peoples and considered itself as the only one entitled to exist, the only one beloved of God. And then all these promises of heaven, with the view of more easily procuring the sacrifice of earthly life, all these ceremonies, consecrations, oaths, hymns which are intended to awaken in the breast of the man ordered into war, that joy in death, repulsive words to me, which they so admire. Is it not? Everything has two sides, Martha, said Frederick, interrupting me. It is because we deprecate war that everything which supports and excuses it, everything which veils its horrors, appears hateful to us. Yes, of course, because the hateful thing is upheld thereby. But not thereby only. All institutions stand on roots of a thousand fibers, and as long as they exist, it must be a good thing that those feelings and methods of thought should persist by which they are excused, by which they are rendered not only tolerable, but even beloved. How many a poor fellow is helped through his death agony by that same joy in death into which he has been educated? How many a pious soul relies in all confidence on the help of God, of which he has been assured by the preacher? How much innocent vanity and proud feeling of honor are awakened and satisfied by those ceremonies? How many hearts beat higher at the sound of those hymns? From the total of the pain which war has brought on men, we must at least deduct that pain which war poets and war preachers have contrived to sing away and lie away. End of section 64 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona